Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, I take a trip to the Isle of Skye. When I visited Skye, I was lucky enough to meet producers and people working in various food and drinks businesses across the island. First stop was the Isle of Skye Sea Salt Company, where I met Mina and Chris Watts, who, having moved to Skye from London, were determined to set up a long-term sustainable business. We knew that whatever we got involved with would have to be very sustainable in in its makeup because that underlies our own beliefs and values. The Three Chimneys, one of Sky's most popular restaurants and guest houses, was my next stop, where I caught up with head chef Scott Davis. His enthusiasm for the amazing fresh produce available to him was really great and I promise you this interview will make you hungry. Yeah, it's a, a really bountiful place and that's really drive drives our menu. Uh, we get some beautiful seaweed from up the Thurso up in the north of Scotland as well. So yeah, it's quite an amazing how much produce. We're right in the heart of um, the amazing larder in Scotland. I also paid a visit to Isle of Skye Free Range, where I met Glynis and Alistair McLean, who can normally be found working their croft to produce quality free range poultry and meat products for the local market. So this is a little business opportunity, so I started with just a few chickens. Yeah, so that was t- 10 years ago, and then decided we had some good lamb, some good beef. We rear Shetland beef, Shetland cows, and they're a smaller cow. Very suited for this climate, actually, because they don't poach the ground too much. The final stop on my tour was the pier in Dunvegan where I met local fisherman Kevin McKinnon of Loch Dunvegan Shellfish, who told me how fishing is something you'll fall in love with despite the demanding conditions and variable weather. I am now joined by Mina and Chris Watts, founders of the Isle of Sky Sea Salt Company. So if you could just sort of take me to the beginning of the company how did it all kind of come about we moved to sky over 15 years ago and uh, we came with many years of experience when we came to sky we came without any expectations about what we were going to do because we knew we had a range of experience and we didn't want to come with fixed ideas and when we settled here we actually built an eco home and Then we decided we did need to earn some more income. So we knew that whatever we got involved with would have to be very sustainable in in its makeup because that underlies our own beliefs and values. 
And so I'll pass you over to Chris for how <laughs> the sea salt came. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, we were having uh, different ideas that we thought we might uh, take up. And then the idea of sea salt came up. One day I was looking at the lock from the house and thought, well, there's plenty of raw material. <laughs> it's not going to disappear. And maybe sea salt would be a good idea. It's nothing more than an intuition, really. Somehow it sounded right for the Isle of Skye. So we started doing lots of research into different things and uh, different aspects, the way it was made here in the UK, none of which particularly appealed because we wanted something that was very natural. So in the end, we transported a hot, dry climate process to the Isle of Skye. <laughs> yes, everyone laughs when we say that. Uh, the idea was to use solar evaporation. So in order to do that, we had to find a way where, where that might work. And so we looked at polytunnels and putting ponds inside polytunnels. The sun generates enough heat inside the polytunnel to evaporate the water. And then the wind blows through the polytunnel and clears the saturated air so that the stage uh, cycle continues right down to when we form the crystal. So we call it a single stage evaporation so that everything that's in the sea, all the minerals and compounds which compose the seawater are actually in the crystals as well. So it's a very natural product. When Chris says we, actually it was Chris who was the geek at the beginning <laughs> and he actually did two years of research on... Um, how we might be able to have a process here on Sky that really was sustainable. We had no textbooks to follow and we actually, you know, reflecting back on that, we're really pleased that we didn't follow anybody else. We actually developed our own process and we knew that because of what we had done before, that the best way to go forward was not to sort of start something and halfway through sort of say, oh, well, now introduce sustainable and eco features to this we actually wanted to do that right from the word go um, so now we as we say with our sea salt it's from it's sustainable from lock to larder and how long ago was that we went into production in 2013 with one pond so these are commercial polytunnel size so about 90 feet by 20 feet uh, and then the following year we added another pond the following year we added a drying tunnel for drying the salt naturally, uh, then the third pond the year after that. So 2017, we got to full production, <laughs> four years later. <laughs> and what made you come to Skye from Yorkshire? Was it just like something you always wanted to do? No, our base was, Chris was actually born, that's what he oh, was right. born in Yorkshire. Yeah, that yeah. was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, very long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> Um, our base was actually in, in London. Right. So what happened was we were actually working in Papua New Guinea, managing the then largest voluntary service overseas programme of 90 projects, which is huge. Um, we used to do a lot of walking and camping in years gone by. And it was in Papua New Guinea that we realised that um, back home, we had never got as far as Scotland uh, with our walking, um, partly because we had some lovely Scottish people working with us, you know, on projects there. When we came back, we, every year um, from our London base, we'd have a holiday on and walk, you know, up the western sort of highlands. And then one year we came to Skye because there was a bridge and wasn't really any planning. And it was just, there was something about the location and Skye that just, I think it just sort of really got into our souls. Mm. We knew that we wanted to 
to move here to that particular location especially and we had the opportunity to do that and uh, really consider this very much as home and absolutely love it. So you don't miss London? No. <laughs> no, I think, it, to be fair, I think, you know, we um, it's been lovely exploring the cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh as well. It's nice to have the city breaks in the past, you know, before COVID. And um, London's a great city. I'm not going to... Not going to play it down. We loved our life there. We always worked hard and we really enjoyed um, the range of cultural aspects there. We're very much entrenched to the Scottish way of life. One of the things I've loved, I was asked to be chair of Sky Dance in years gone, but when I first came, dancing's my other, I love it as a, you know, as a hobby. And then I got asked to be director of the Aros Community Theatre and it was just lovely to be, you know, to make an input into to both of those organisations and others. And I think one of the things that I really love about being here is um, there are lots of similarities between the Scottish culture and the Indian culture. That thing about families coming together and eating and drinking and singing and laughing and having a blather, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, um, it's really... It's lovely. Back to the salt. So it's very much of its place. Do you find over the course of the time you've been doing this that the food and drink industry drives tourism? So do you find people come to visit you when they're visiting Sky just to sort of pick up a bit of local produce? We don't really do a lot of tours. If people find us, then we're happy <laughs> to, to sort of talk to them and take them through the process. But, uh, you know, we're, we've deliberately got ourselves out at a fairly remote location uh, on the the lock, uh, lock Snizer. So we're not really geared up for visits and things like that. So, uh, but the tourism industry has been very important to us in people buying our product. Uh, we are sold right across the island and across the highlands. We were very aware strategically, you know, if we're talking about how we were going to go forward, there was the sustainable aspects. We also wanted to really promote the Isle of Skye brand. That's what we started doing very you know all those years ago and lots of other producers have taken that up and what happens is in the past people have come from all over the world and we've also been really thankful for the support that we've had from you know in terms of grants the odd grant that we've got from Island Enterprise and yeah. and others and you know, for a small business, things like that are just so important because it's re it is really hard work. We established and it, as a company and it can come across as quite glamorous, but it's been really hard work. And we're really proud to have been part of that Scottish food and drink industry, actually. We've had great support from the businesses on Sky as well. Three Chimneys has supported us from day one and the other restaurants across Sky as well. So uh, we're very lucky in that way. And we work with uh, a number of producers as well uh, across Scotland, so Graham's uh, Butter, uh, Isle of Skye Sea Salt Butter, and with Cocoa Chocolate in Edinburgh, Chocolates of Glenshiel, and a number of other chocolatiers. And this sort of natural sea salt is becoming quite a thing, isn't it, with Blackthorn and then East Nukes? It's quite nice to see because obviously customers are going and we want something more natural than what was your, your table salt. Is that? Yeah, they are. It's um, people who love food um, and sort of want to know how things are uh, made are interested in foods like the sea salt. We were actually invited to the first uh, salt symposium, sea salt symposium in Barora a couple of months ago now, yeah, actually. Yeah. 
They had a lot of um, archaeologists talking about how salt used to be made in Scotland and we were asked to talk on a sustainable process. And then when we were introduced, we were actually introduced as pioneers of the sea salt industry in Scotland because, of course, it hasn't really, as a business, it hasn't really um, happened for hundreds of years to be sort of presented as people who kind of kick-started salt industry felt like it was quite a nice feeling Um, I think the other thing is that we're all different as well and we all make our salt differently we were the first in the UK to do the solar evaporation process and we're still the only one in Scotland doing that and it produces different salts so the nature of the salt and the taste of the salt and the texture of the salt is different from each producer so people do have a real choice of buying Scottish sea salt rather than just looking to England or to Europe or further afield. And would you say, is it more the process that influences the taste rather than the location? I think it's both. It's that mix of provenance and process. We have a very slow natural process. We only make the salt April to September because we don't have any power on site. It's just the sun and the wind. That long process and you know the type of water that you're using, very clean waters around sky, means that you're, you've got a very pure product. And that's reflected in, in the taste and the texture of the crystals that give a, a different texture, say, to the flakes that you commonly get from the, the more industrial process. So how do you, do you just get the water from the lock and just leave it? And it's just the sun and the wind that just breaks it down into the salt, is that right? So you just go and take, take out the water. water? Yeah, we pump the water out uh, of the lock into the ponds. Right, and, then- uh, and then we leave it to naturally evaporate, literally. So it could take four weeks, five weeks, three weeks really depends on the sun and the wind because you need the wind going through the, the polytunnels to clear the saturated air. So, yeah, I mean, uh, sun and wind together, which luckily we do get quite a lot of wind. <laughs> uh, and sometimes we get quite a lot of sun. So it does work, obviously. We're still here after <laughs> nearly 10 years, uh, but it is only April to September. We're really grateful to the local people, you know, when we first started and even now, because they sort of feel really proud that, you know, we've created something that is on the Isle of Skye and they've been really sportive, which has been really important to us. But as have all the top chefs, Sky is, um, you know, good food destination. We've been supported by them and that's, you know, it's been really fantastic that we've had that sport. Uh, well, thank you very much. Thank you, yeah. Thank you very much. Today I'm joined by Scott Davis, the head chef of the Three Chimneys. Hi Scott, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. So we're sat here um, in the restaurant, which is pretty well known, like well-renowned across the world. How did you get to this point in your career? I've worked as a chef for almost two decades now, so I worked all over Scotland. In 2013 I was on Mass Chef Professionals, and that sort of flagged my name, I think, with the previous owner, Shirley and Eddie. So Shirley gave me a phone call in the beginning of 2015, and we started the interview process then. I loved the idea, I knew the Three Chimneys really well, loved the whole ethos of the business, and I was lucky enough to get the job here and started in uh, June 2015. And coming in, did you have sort of things that you knew you wanted to do, or were you just kind of sort of picking up where the last chef kind of left off? When I came to the Three Chimneys, I was yeah, I was quite in awe of the place. Um, obviously, the connections they made with all the locals, producers, was incredible. So, first of all, when I came here, I was really much finding my feet, and then learning the history of the business and the restaurant to make sure we I kept in the same ethos 
of the business. So very much when I took over from Michael Smith, I cooked his menu for maybe three or four months and I started then sort of changing to sort of my style, which is really looking into the history of Scotland sort of quite Nordic, a lot of curing, pickling, a lot of smoking, a lot of preserving. And then I really phased that in for over a couple of years. So it wasn't really till beginning of 2017, I really started cooking, cooking my style of food very much with in keeping of the three chimneys. So it's very much a um, like local seasonal produce working with very closely with local suppliers, is that right? Yeah, so the three chimneys is all, you know, Shirley, Shirley and Eddie championed this, you know, for, you know, 40 odd years now. And, you know, we've got a very, very good relationship with um, some great suppliers. So obviously we've got locked and vegan shellfish. We get prawns, crab, lobsters from. Uh, we got scones scallop. Uh, with Davy and Ben, we get some beautiful scallops from. Uh, we get mussels on the island. We get Isla Sky sea salt. We've used Orbost in the past um, for Iron Age pigs, um, cattle, beef, sheep. We now use Vat and Farm um, for uh, lambs and beef. We obviously forage a lot on the islands. We get some uh, beautiful sea uh, sea herbs, uh, wood sorrel, wild garlic, nettles. And then we go to uh, the Outer Hebrides for uh, some beautiful grouse and woodcock from Lewis. Uh, we go to Barra from some beautiful snails. And then we go to the mainland then, we use Cano more for fruit wines. So we don't use any European or uh, wines, we use all fruit wines. It's obviously what we used in the past. We get a lot more game then from the mainland. So yeah, it's a, a really bountiful place and that's really drive, drives our menu. Uh, we get some beautiful seaweed from up the Thurso up in the north of Scotland as well. So yeah, it's quite an amazing how much produce. We're right in the heart of um, an amazing larder in Scotland. And do you find throughout your career, I mean obviously this place has been built um, on tourism and people coming for the food, but have you found throughout your career that it's become more obvious as people travel, they, they want to know and they're quite keen to find out more about the food and where it's come from? I think definitely people with, with tourism definitely when they come to the Three Chimneys and come to restaurants now it's all about produce and provenance because that's the whole point of coming to that area is is getting that great produce and obviously you know the big topic of the day is obviously carbon footprint as well and the big impact of hospitality is we make sure that we're using produce in season and as local as we can and that really really helps. What was it like being on MasterChef? Was it? Do you think things like that really sort of people watch it and think, "Oh, I'd actually quite like to do that as a job"? When I did MasterChef Professionals, it was actually really good for myself personally. I think I was quite a shy individual. I love cooking, but you know, I never did demos. I, I was quite in myself and not really not a great teacher. So when I did that, it really forced me to open up and speak to people. Speak to a lot of people a lot going on um, and that really developed me as a as a chef and a person so when I moved on from that I found it a lot easier to talk to guests to other chefs and it just made me a better person. Did you always want to be a chef? Did you grow up in quite a foodie family or is this a bit of a step in a different direction for you? When I was growing up we always I was always involved in um, you know family teas baking it was actually quite funny my brother was more involved with baking my mum and I was less so as the as the younger child so it was just a natural, it was something I really loved. I think when I was in school, I really loved cooking. I did a um, work experience when I was about 
15 and went to a local hotel and I absolutely loved it, I loved the vibe, loved the banter in the kitchen, I loved the excitement. And then it was just a natural path then to Caitlin College, um, worked at a local hotel and my career shot through and never looked back. You're Welsh, so did you stay in Wales or did you want to come to Scotland or did you sort of kind of happen naturally as these things do? My mum is uh, Scottish, she was born in Glasgow then lived in Inverness. My father's from uh, Milford Haven in Pembrokeshire in West Wales, so they met sailing around the ILC, they met in Malaig. My mum lived in Wales for 21 years. So I lived there for 16 years. Um, Mum said, I've had enough of Wales. Lived there for 21 years, wanted to move home. So we came up uh, came up to Canoostie and I lived there for two years. And I've now been in Scotland for 18 years. You probably get asked this all the time, but do you have a favourite sort of Scottish produce to cook with? Oh, Scottish produce is so diverse. There's like a lot of questions get asked. I've got a signature dish, favourite ingredient. I think obviously because we work so so much with the seasons, everything changes all the time. One of my favourite birds is probably grouse. Well, grouse and woodcock, I absolutely love them. Woodcock's king of the birds. I love scallops. I can't really choose. One of my favourite dishes on the menu at the moment is um, we make our own haggis using some beautiful offal from Vatten Farm, and we serve that with a you know a cheddar tart, some Tasca whiskey, um, jus gras, um, a little whipped crowdy, pickled turnips and fermented potatoes which is almost like salt and vinegar potatoes that's my favourite dish at the moment but always evolving and always changing and if you had any advice for anyone sort of coming into the industry especially now when things are a bit different for difficult for staff what would you say like what would be your top tips if I was starting my career off from now I would um, I would really look at restaurants or hotels look at the ethos look at their menus I would then go there and then I would eat there first just to see if I enjoyed the food. And when you're there, you can then speak to the staff and see the vibe. And it's pretty obvious if you're in a happy workplace, because if everybody's smiling and thing, it makes a big difference. Then I would obviously then talk to the chef and I'd speak to him about, you know, ethos of the business, how the kitchen runs, how many hours you work, what benefits, what training you get, and how much food is actually prepared in-house, which I think is so important. Because obviously the biggest factor in any business is obviously wage costs. So a lot of things in there, unfortunately, in restaurants and hotels is all bought in, pre-packaged, portioned. So it's really important as a young chef that you get to learn all your base skills from classical French cooking to uh, all your whole butchery, fish prep, shellfish, all your base cookery, and that will set you up in your first couple of years then to move forward quite fast in your career. And you sound like you're pretty set with your suppliers, but do you kind of add new people in or kind of, you know, because I'm thinking there's always someone making gin, you know, the Stylus Guy Sea Salt is relatively new. So, like, are you always kind of on the lookout for new businesses popping up? Yeah, so for for new suppliers, I know the best the best tool at the moment we use is obviously social media. So we keep an eye out on uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all these kinds of things. Obviously, speak to other chefs in the industry, speak to guests all the time, speak to locals, and there's always always keep your ear to the ground. And anything that pops up, we we tend to use, and we get approached. Obviously, with the you know the quality of restaurant we are, we get approached by a lot of new suppliers as well if we would like to use them as well. So the last part of the podcast is two sort of questions. One's a quick fire round, one's a general sort of, you might again get asked this all the time, but so if you could only take three whiskies to Desert Island, what would they be? The whiskies I would take to a Desert Island would be um, uh, Glenfiddich, Glen Cron. I had that uh, with Mark Thompson at the start of the year, absolutely, I thought it was phenomenal. Beautiful. I love Jura 10-year-old. It's sort of my go-to whiskey. I just find it really easy, really easy to drink. Just really beautiful. And I really like Arbeg as well. 
I really like that. So that's really smoky, really rich kind of style as well. That's a good wake up, wake up whiskey. The last part is five quick fire questions about food. So if you tell me the first thing that comes into your head, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I'm hungry, I think of meat. Comfort food for me is cheese. My favourite childhood dessert is Cranican. My food heaven is chocolate. And my food hell is avocado. Thank you very much. That's the noise of hundreds of chicks. I stopped off at Isle of Skye Free Range, also known as Vatten Farm, to see how the business was going and to hear how Glynis and Alistair came to work this croft. Could you just tell me a little bit about your farm? Well, I was born here, basically. <laughs> born in Portray, brought up in Sky, learnt all crofting aspects from my father, did a stint away, working away for a while, then came back and started up another business on the croft, taking it in a different direction. What was it they were doing before and what kind of direction have you gone in now? Well, basically before it was just cheap cattle on the place, growing them up to what we call sort of like store sale. So they're just sold on to middleman kind of thing and then he fattens them up again and stuff. So now we're taking the product direct from the croft to the customer. So we've cut out the middleman, making as much on the beast that we can ourselves. Basically. And do you find in the time that you've been doing this that there's a lot more interest from the consumer in that kind of uh, knowing where everything's come from? Yeah, actually a couple of weekends ago we were at uh, the Armadale Market and we had a lot of customers there saying that they would quite happily buy the meat when they know it's from a local producer and not just randomly from anywhere in Britain like your supermarket you can't really identify where it comes from so yeah a lot of encouragement from customers that the the food that we're producing is what they want. How do you think the sort of landscape and like where we are sort of influences or affects what it is you can and can't do here? Well it's only really good to grow animals on over the years the weather patterns changed that the, um, we can't grow the the crops I remember as a kid here we always had corn we always did our own hay um, now it's it's struggling even to get people to do hay silage is the the quickest easiest option now for that sort of thing so we've just stuck generally to having our cattle and sheep on the place to to rear on and sell. How do you find, if you find at all, that the tourism, because obviously Sky's pretty well known as a tourist spot these days, how does that affect you in any way or does it not really matter? doesn't really affect us at all for the way that we work our craft. We do get the odd tourists that obviously when they come on, they have said they've come on to Sky and they want to buy local produce. So if they do a Google search, Sky Free Range comes up. So we have sold to tourists. They have come here direct to the Croft bought office and some of them have bought a week's supply of meat if they're staying in a holiday cottage. Yes, it, it helps us, but generally the tourists don't really affect us. You guys supply the three chimneys, so how did all that come about? That kind of came about. We um, supplied them with chicken carcasses. I believe they used to they used them for stock and stuff like that. Earlier this year, we sent an email saying that we had X amount of chicken carcasses available and uh, just tagged on the email, would you be interested in some lamb and some beef? And Scott came back straight away and said, yeah. So he came up, had a look around the croft, saw some of the animals and stuff, told them what we could do. And uh, yeah, just he literally went away with 
two back legs two days later or something like that. We did lamb for him later on, we've done beef for him now, he's taking more lamb off us and hopefully in the future he'll take more beef and lamb off us as well. You're quite far from where you're from. <laughs> so are you from farming background as, as well or is this sort of... My grandparents were farmers, um, I grew up in a very rural community but I was very much a townie, <laughs> did not like animals. <laughs> much at all growing up when I was on my grandparents farm if I could spend it with my grandma in the kitchen I would but came here and just yeah got into the crofting learnt off Ali of how to work the sheep and the cows and stuff and then we had got some chickens at one point and I got some for eating and reared them and went these are a really different flavour and thought, I can't buy them here on Sky. And I thought, oh, this is a little business opportunity. So I started with just a few chickens. Yeah, so that was t 10 years ago. And then decided we had some good lamb, some good beef. We rear Shetland beef, Shetland cows, and they're a smaller cow. Very suited for this climate, actually, because they don't poach the ground too much and stuff. They're a bit smaller, but commercially, they're not quite so viable. We'd put one of those, done one for our own freezer, decided, yes, maybe we could sell that as well, sell a little bit of the beef. And that's how it's, yeah, sort of all come about. And how did the chicken taste different? Is it just the, whatever you'd sort of reared them on, or how does that work? The chickens taste different because they're actually about three times as old as a normal supermarket chicken. They're day-old chicks that we've got here just now. We've got them last Friday, and they're not ready till next March, whereas a normal supermarket chicken that's even barn-raised and, and things are about six weeks old when they're ready. So they've grown really quickly. So whereas ours are about four months old. They're outside from a month to six weeks old. They're scratching around in the grass. They're eating all the grubs, so they're growing a lot slower, so they're developing a lot more flavour, which is why they just taste, yeah, completely different. I've had customers say they've kind of had it for the first time. They says it's quite gamey, but actually then other customers come up to us and go, that's what I remember my grandmother giving to us when she used to go out the back of the croft and get one of her hens for dinner. Um, and so how did you guys meet? I was working on the croft, I was working for a local farmer's roundabout and then I got asked by a shearing contractor that worked down Lockernhead to go down and help him out. Uh, so I went down there for a few weeks, met up with a chap from New Zealand called Hugh McDade. He said to us, if you want a job in New Zealand, I'll organise you a job. So I just said, yeah, go for it. Thought, never hear anything about it. He phoned us up about two months later and said, um, right, you've got a job, you've got to be here by November. Organised people to look after the croft for us while I was away because I was ended up away for seven months. Flew out to New Zealand and started shearing the next day in New Zealand. And yeah, did seven months out in New Zealand. Uh, took a month off while I was there and travelled around the South Island as well. Just before I, I flew out, there was a big shearing contest in Tikiwiri. It's the main shearing contest in New Zealand. Went up there, sheared in the shearing show, went out to the pub, like you do, and uh, yeah, met Glenis. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. As you do. <laughs> and then you, you, obviously because you've got this craft, you came here. Yeah, I'd um, finished uni um, and things out in New Zealand. Wasn't sure what I was going to do, so I decided to... It's one of the things that Kiwis always... Most Kiwis do is do their big OE to Britain anyway, so I was planning on doing that, so I came over here. 
um, to see where Ali lived. And yeah, 22 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> Haven't actually left. <laughs> uh, we did at one point think of selling everything and moving out back out to New Zealand. But Sky, it's a great place to raise a family as well. Just a nice nice place to live and we've made made a life here and we've done changes with the croft and so we're making a living off the croft as well although we do both work off the croft um it's not a full-time living at the moment can i just ask when you the difference between a croft and a farm is is it someone else owns the land of the croft is that right yeah um we're tenants to mcleod estate so we pay our rent every year to McLeod Estate. So um, as long as we pay the rent, you can't chuck us off. <laughs> um, but this croft um, has been in my family for about 150 years. So my grandfather, one of my uncles, and my father ran it. And now I'm running it. Um, and hopefully we'll see. But our oldest daughter, um, she's really keen on crofting and farming and stuff like that. So she might take it on as well. That's good. Yeah, so goes into another generation. And what lambs do you have? Or sheep, sorry. Generally, they're, they're cheviots with a touch of Texel through them. Um, we run, basically we run what they call a meat-linked tup, which is a tup that's been made up of five different breeds, um, and we get them index-linked purely for what we want them for. So at the moment we have two meat-linked tops running with yows. Um, one of them uh, is index-linked to produce um, ewe lambs um, for mothering ability. So any ewe lambs that he leaves should be, become good mothers that we'll keep in the flock and use to breed with. Um, the other one is index-linked just to produce fat lambs. So all the lambs from him will be sold. These lambs come up to wait for us quite quickly um, through the summer on the good grass so we can we can start taking lambs out early on. We start lambing beginning of April with the yows and we can have the first lot of lambs away mid-July to the abattoir to, to customers. And is the abattoir nearby or do you have to sort of ship them into...? No, it's a three-hour drive for us, one way. The nearest one is Monroe's in Dingwall. Is that the same for the chickens or do you just sort of...? Uh, chickens we're allowed to process here on site. So um, the biggest mileage for the chickens is um, I went to Perth on Friday to collect the day-olds. Um, they're hatched down in England, so that's the biggest mileage for them. Um, for the chicks but no everything else we're allowed to do on site and if we wanted to buy some eggs or a whole chicken are you is it very much a you need to come here to do that or do you sort of send out on from online or anything um, the easiest way is to either send us an email through our um, website which is just skyfreerange.co.uk or we're also on facebook um, skyfreerange and most of our customers message us through that get in direct contact because We've not always got everything available. <laughs> we don't do, can't do mail order at the moment. It's really difficult getting next day delivery off the island. And so the last part of the podcast is a quick fire round to do with food. So I'll ask you five questions, but in between the two of you, if you just tell me the first thing that comes into your head, if that's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with you. Whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Pineapple lumps. <laughs> From New Zealand sweetie. Oh, right. Comfort food for me is? Uh, biscuits and cheese. Um, my favourite childhood dessert is? Pavlova. My food heaven is? Mm, 
all sorts, but yeah, jelly and ice cream probably. And my food hell is oysters. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Just now, I'm joined by Kevin McKinnon of Locked and Vegan Shellfish. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Fine, thanks. Uh, so we're standing here at the pier. We're surrounded by creels. So could you just tell me well, how's your day been so far? What have you been up to? Currently washing and mending, getting this gear ready for the boys to go catch plenty of prawns, hopefully. The boat's actually out fishing at the minute. They won't be in until later on. So we're just here getting things organised for them when they come in. They can get these aboard to go back out. And have you always kind of worked as a fisherman? Have you, is it a family thing or is it something you've got into? Yeah, my dad's had boats since, well, since I was born. And both my grandfather's fished before that, so kind of had no choice in the matter. I was going to end up doing it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Do you quite enjoy it, though? Uh, sometimes. When the weather's fair and there's plenty going, but winters can be hard. And is it quite a seasonal thing? Well, we fish all year round. Certain times of year there's more, more of some things than, than others. At the minute, from August to now, we've been doing quite a bit more crab than, than prawns. But prawns are all year. All the boats do prawns all year round. Just sometimes there's more to catch than others. And so is this a sea lock? Yes. In fact, we're only a few miles out there. You pass the head, you're into the little minch. You get prawns, langoustines, that kind of thing. Is that only really available in summer like this? I've got all around, all around the coast of the UK. West Coast Scotland is renowned for it, right enough. So you supply the three chimneys? Yeah, I have done for a few years. They take well, both langoustine and crab from us. So you're saying the West Coast is renowned for this. Is, it, is there any particular reason why the West Coast is so well-known for its seafood? What we do is keel-caught, so... The quality of the produce is much better compared to trawled and things like that. There's not, not much of a trawling fleet left on the West Coast these days, unfortunately. What is the difference between keel caught and trawling? Well, trawled is a tow net behind you and you're just dragging at the bottom, catching what's there, keels you set and leave leave for a period of time and whatever happens to be out will crawl into them. It's a lot less. Trawling is more of a forced method of catching, whereas keels, there's no damage to the seabed and things. They're just left catch whatever chooses to go in. Whereas trawling, you're just scooping up everything that's there in your path. Um, and do you eat a lot? It's a probably stupid question, but do you eat a lot of uh, what you catch? Uh, yes, you'd think you'd get sick of it after eating it from, from damn near your birth, but no. <laughs> yeah, still eat plenty and enjoy it. <laughs> and what is the best way, would you say, to sort of enjoy um, this kind of seafood? Brown crab, I especially like to do on a barbecue or open fire. Just put them in whole. Dispatch them first, obviously, <laughs> and then chuck them on whole. That's that's my favourite way of eating them. And pro- in fact, everything's done well on a barbecue. Um, but yeah, just it's that fresh. You can't really you can't really go wrong. <laughs> so, are you normally out on the boat, or do you kind of do a mix of different things? A bit of both. I've actually got a small boat that I fish through from May to November for wrasse, which we don't eat. We sell them to the fish farms. They use them as cleaner fish. Uh, so they clean the lice off the salmon, trout, uh, instead of using chemical treatments like peroxide and things. So I do that through the summer months. And I've got my kids most weekends, so I can sometimes fish through the week, but I'm mostly ashore doing these fun jobs like washing and mending creels <laughs> while, while everyone else is out there catching. And is it the type of thing that um, you can just kind of just fall in love with and that's you? you know, Because it must be quite hard in terms of like, you see the weather and things. Yeah, you do get hooked on it. I mean, I've I went offshore for years, uh, offshore wind and oil and gas. But then I was lucky to have this to fall back on right enough. But 
Yeah, you'd always end up back doing it. You hate it at the time. You're constantly abusing your body and <laughs> aches and pains. I'm only 33, but I feel about 50-odd. <laughs> but yeah, you still go back and do it. <laughs> and what a place to do it as well. I know, you, I mean, the type of place you must be used to all this, but it's an amazing landscape. Yeah, I mean, as I say, in the summer months, when the weather's nice, there probably isn't a better job, really, but... The winters are long here. You get about eight months of winter, <laughs> only a couple of months of summer. It can be quite hard on the body and the head, but at the same time, it is enjoyable. And what about tourism on Sky? Like, it's become extremely well known as a tourist destination. Is that something that affects you, or is it not really something that you need um, to deal with? Not really. Not while we're at sea, but as we discussed earlier, the roads is a bit of an issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what the bulk of what we catch still goes to the continent. It's a very small percentage of our catch actually stays stays locally. Almost every business on the island relies on tourism in, in some way, shape or form. So it's definitely beneficial to the place as a whole. Why is it farm salmon in Scotland and not wild salmon? There's very few wild salmon caught. It's just the sheer volume of salmon that's consumed. They're just not there in the wild, so they have to be farmed. And the Scottish farm salmon goes everywhere globally, Asia. I'd actually like to know myself what percentage stays here <laughs> because all over America, North America, Asia, this place is always Scottish, Scottish salmon you see, and it is all farmed. I mean, I kind of understood it's like because there's so much salmon consumed, but you can fish wild salmon just use a person. You can, yeah, you can. There is, they are still there, but yeah, for the amount that's consumed, you can never catch wild, and all the rivers you can catch them, or the majority of them are permitted, so you need to be licensed to do it. And you're saying quite a lot of your. Um, catch goes to the continent nothing's really changed then with Brexit made it a bit more difficult for I mean our buyers we don't ship it direct uh, so we land twice a week to Vivier which is then take a time out and from there they pack it out to the continent so it's become quite a bit more difficult for them paperwork wise and there was a wee blip I mean the whole of January last year when Brexit was first kind of clicked into action we had a month where there was just no landings whatsoever so that was a bit difficult but everyone seems to be on top of it now and things are flowing a bit more smoothly just the final bit of the podcast is five quick fire questions if you tell me the first thing that comes into your head okay whenever I'm hungry I think of What's, I, I don't know that's really stumped me I love all food <laughs> normally should eat so or something like that <laughs> comfort food for me is yeah junk like probably pizzas and things like that yeah. my favourite childhood dessert is oh Mars Bar Slice that you used to get in primary school <laughs> not had it in years <laughs> my food heaven is uh, probably Spanish food any tapas meats seafoods paellas yeah Spanish is my go to food and my food hell is lamb absolutely hate lamb even the smell of it cooking just I can't do it but I did for the first time in a huge number of years eat lamb at the chimneys two weeks ago <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him I didn't like lamb and dad was he decided to man up and eat oysters so I thought I'd do it and it was actually very nice this could be me tonight because I'm going to have the tasting menu and I've not told him I don't like lamb so yeah. I'm going to take your word for it <laughs> it was very nice but I'd, I definitely preferred a beef or venison as the red meat course but yeah, yeah it was nice thank you very much thank you Thanks to my guests on this episode of Scran and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. 
Scrar is a Laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.